Well, good morning. Is Fruit Loops a fruit, do you think? Okay, then that's my favorite. Several fruits. Several fruits, all together. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family this morning, online and in the wise. So fun to be together, whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn to grow and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us we're all active participants as we stay on this journey together. We're all here to receive something this morning, but we also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also pour out love by serving others. As Emma said, Easter is two weeks away. So not next Sunday, but the next And the options are, well, you can join us here at the Y outside in that field at 9.15 or 11. It's the big field up on top of the hill. Um, Or you can worship online. Well, the 9.15 will be live streamed and then we'll post it so you can watch a replay at 11 if you would prefer that. We do need to say a quick, it's a fun little thank you. Uh, As you probably know, our tech team has done a lot of work to get us kind of up and running on Sunday mornings. What you might not know is that when Pastor Flowers from Gethsemane Baptist was here, he was kind of so impressed by our congregation, both how we were doing things and the engagement we were seeing, that he went home to Gethsemane and said, we got to figure out how to do that. And so, starting next week, Gethsemane Baptist will be doing hybrid services, both in person and online, because some of our tech folks have been collaborating with them to figure out how to do that. So, well done to Gethsemane. We're excited for Gethsemane to to take that step. Uh, Another fun thing you should sort of be aware of in the life of the church is that about a year ago, we had to power down all the engines. You remember that if you were around? We said to power down all the engines. And now, as we see the vaccine is going to become more widely distributed in the, in the months ahead, we're slowly starting to fire some of those engines back up. Not all at once, but just little by little. When we do fire up the engines one by one, what we're going to discover is we need a little bit more horsepower to get us from where we are to when everyone can get the vaccine. And so you're going to see us doing these little kind of micro encouragements to jump in to some of the needs that we see in our immediate time in the life of the church. So the one we're really focusing on right now is set up and pack up. That now that we're doing the trussing system again and doing a, a more uh, robust setup, we need some extra folks to jump in on setup and pack up. So we're looking for three people to jump in with setup, one person to jump in with pack up. That doesn't mean you have to serve every week. You'll serve about every third week. Setup will get here around seven to seven to eight is usually when that is. Packups around twelve to one. If we're here past one, people from the Y get sticks and start running after us. So. We try to avoid that at all costs. All that to say, a great chance for you to jump in, be part of the life of the church, get to know some other people, start to develop a servant's heart, and when we come together to worship, realize that you're not only receiving this, you're giving towards it as well. So if you'd be interested in jumping in with either setup or pack up, let me know. Michael Flake, mflake at lakeforest.org. Sounds good. And we'll keep doing these little micro opportunities as we fire up more engines. Today, well, last week was Pi Day and our 500th Sunday as a church. So this Sunday is our 501st Sunday as a church. Very good. It's also World Down Syndrome Day. 
Now, I'm not sure I could have told you five years ago that March 21st was World Down Syndrome Day, but then about four years ago, uh, my oldest daughter, Mandy and I's oldest daughter, Indiana, we call her Indy, Indy was born with an extra chromosome. Didn't tell us, didn't ask our permission, just did it. So she is our adventure and our adventurer. Our lives have never quite been the same. So today we celebrate her and a lot of other people, World Down Syndrome Day. Now there are, of course, hard parts uh, to having extra chromosomes or having a child with extra chromosomes, but, so we're not naive about that. Um, but at the same time, you can't dwell on that stuff, right? Like a lot of it is medical in nature, and we deal with it now, we will deal with it in the future, and you can't dwell on it or you'd go crazy, right? Today has enough joy and, and trouble of its own. We'll let everything wait till later. But as an example, a lot of older adults with Down syndrome develop Alzheimer's. And that, that's just a, like a nasty thing, right? Many of us know that firsthand. My grandmother had Alzheimer's. And in her final years, she could not tell you what had just happened, but she could tell you that she was the valedictorian of her high school class, that one of her other 12 classmates was named Possum. I'm not making this up. And that maybe it wasn't such an honor to be the valedictorian of a 13-person class where one of the students was named Possum. (laughs) It was a well-honed joke. (laughs) And it was still funny even to the end. But today what we're talking about is a spiritual condition that's almost the opposite of Alzheimer's. What I mean by that is today we're talking about a spiritual condition where we lose our long-term memory and can only think about what's happening right now. Our relationship with God becomes defined by our immediate circumstances with no sense of history and no broader context. We turn to Numbers chapter 13 and 14. This is what Katie read for us earlier. If this is your first time with us, you would not know that we are in the midst of a year-long series of sermons called The Story with a capital S. We are preaching through, walking through the big picture of the Bible. So if you are new, there are resources that you can find on that slide you see right there. There are resources designed to help you read and study the Bible on your own throughout the week. Wherever you are in your faith, we would love to have you jump in and find a way that you can become more familiar and at home in the words of the Bible. Previously on the story, like when it fades to black, previously on the story. We've watched God create the world. We've watched God create humanity in his own image. We've seen humanity and all of creation be pulled into rebellion against God. We've seen God make an everlasting promise, a covenant with Abraham and Sarah, promising to bless the people of every family through their family. Then we've seen God keep that promise to their descendants, to Isaac, to Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And those descendants went to Egypt to escape a famine. There they were enslaved. They multiplied, they multiplied, they multiplied. God delivered the Israelite, the Hebrew people, from slavery in Egypt through the Passover, parting the Red Sea. He did all this through the leadership of Moses, who was a mutterer and a murderer. And so God made him his spokesman and the leader of his people. God gave Moses and his people the Ten Commandments to be a shining example to the watching world. That gets us to the book of Numbers. Now, I'll just tell you, this book doesn't add up. Thank you. 
truthfully, you could divide this book into many parts. But thank you. Numbers is about the people's journey to the promised land. God has promised his people. That's the end of the numbers pun. God has promised his people. They would just multiply if I didn't stop there. Thank you. God has promised his... Well, should I subtract those before the next sermon? I'm sorry. Yeah, these are getting exponentially worse. God, thank you. God's people are journeying to the promised land. God has promised his people a place to settle, a place to call home, a place to live as that shining light to the watching world. God is taking them to the promised land. Chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From their ancestral tribe, from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at this point, God's people were also a setup church. They had to get new people to join their setup and pack up team too, because they had this tabernacle in the middle of their gathering, and then the priests would camp around that, and then the 12 tribes the descendants of Israel or Jacob's sons would then camp around that tabernacle. They were a God-centered community, and the community fanned out around the center. Maybe this sounds familiar. So they're traveling to the promised land, and God tells Moses, send 12 people to explore the land. Do some due diligence. What is this promised land like? What obstacles could we face? What opportunities will we encounter Flip charts had not yet been invented, but this would have been an off-site planning retreat if they had. But the point is, God says, I've promised you this land. I'm going to give you this land. Go scout it out so that you'll be prepared. So this is the promised land, like promised since chapter 17 of the Bible, and now we're in chapter 130 of the Bible. We've been waiting a long time for this. And it's about to come true. God's promise is about to come true. So the 12 spies go off to scout out the promised land. And this is the report they bring back. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And in fact, if you go and look at the logo of the modern-day country of Israel's tourism bureau, it is people holding fruit. It's a reference to that verse. God, ever since he delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, they have been wandering through a desert, and God has been providing for their needs. The desert is that upside-down triangle between Egypt and sort of the modern-day Israel-Palestine area. They've been wandering through this desert, and in the desert, God has provided for their needs through quail, through a bread-like substance called manna, and then leading Moses to unexpected sources of water. And so the report on the promised land is that it flows with milk and honey, that we're not going to be scraping by on bread and water anymore. Now the report continues. But... The people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, meaning some gigantic people. So yes, the promised land is a land full of milk and honey and fruit. It's also full of a lot of other people, big scary people, who will annihilate us if we try to settle near them. 
And so by a vote of 10 to 2, the spies decide we should not go to the promised land. By a vote of 10 to 2, the spies decide we should not go to the promised land. I'm sure there's a leadership lesson in here about people overstepping their authority because what were the spies sent to do? Spy, investigate the promised land, learn some things, bring back a report, not decide whether or not we're going to the promised land. God has already settled that we're going to the promised land. In fact, the two dissenting votes are named Caleb and Joshua. You'll want to remember those names. They were Caleb and Joshua. And Caleb and Joshua say essentially that there will be challenges, but God is trustworthy. Let's go to the promised land. But they were the two dissenting votes. Well, the spies bring their report back to the whole people, and I'm sure the people will just receive it calmly and remember the original charge that was given to the spies. Numbers chapter 14, part of what Katie read earlier. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That escalated quickly. A fear frenzy has taken hold. Promised land, we don't need no stinking promised land. If we go to that land, we'll be killed. I wish we just died here in the desert. I wish we just died back in Egypt. There's an idea. We're going back to Egypt. Moses, Aaron, see you jokers later. As I said, today we are talking about a spiritual condition where we lose our long-term memory and can only think about what's happening right now. Our relationship with God is defined only by our immediate circumstances, with no sense of history, no broader context. For hundreds of years, God has been promising this land to His people as a home base from which they will be a shining light, a beacon of God's redemption in a fallen world. They are at the threshold of the promised land, centuries in the making, and they've gone crazy. They're ready to start walking back to Egypt. It's almost like they believe that so long as we're following God, everything will be easy. So long as we're following God, everything will be easy. But at the first sign of trouble, it's back to Egypt. If you are a follower of Jesus, or if today or in the future you become a follower of Jesus, you will be tempted to believe those words. So long as I'm following God, everything will be easy. You'll be tempted to think there's something wrong with you when things get hard. You may be tempted to think there's something wrong with Jesus when things get hard. But what God has promised you is a redemptive and a fulfilling adventure, not easy street. At some point, you and I will be tempted to turn back. But my sermon today is not about boldness for its own sake. Let me repeat, the sermon today is not about boldness for its own sake. The sermon today is about asking God for the courage to do what God has called you to do. Asking God for the courage to do what God has called you to do. 
turning that so long as we follow God, everything will be easy on its head and say, no, what I need is the courage to do what God has called me to do. So how do we know what God has called us to do? That's a big question. So let's start to piece it out just a little bit. As we read and study the Bible, maybe, for instance, last week, the Ten Commandments, or coming up in a few months, the teachings of Jesus. As we read those things, we get a sense of who God is, who God is calling us to be, what God is calling us to do. Sometimes we listen to the Holy Spirit who's deep, stirring deep in our conscience. And that gives us a sense of what God is calling us to do, asking us to do. Oftentimes we take that stirring to some wise, some mature, some trusted Christian friends and ask them to talk about it with us. And in that, we better understand what it is God is calling us to do. So we can move from the very general of what the Scripture says that anyone uh, as a follower of Christ should be doing to sometimes the very specific that the Spirit stirs in us and that we vet out with some wise and trusted Christian friends. But the point is, as we get a sense of what God is calling us to do, we have to ask God for the courage to do what He's calling us to do, to be who He's calling us to be, so that big and scary people don't chase us away from the land of milk and honey. So let's make it real practical. God has called you as an individual, God has called us as a church family to love our neighbors. So what do we do when they're hard to love? God has called you, God has called all of us together to regularly worship together. And our schedules are busy. God has called you as an individual. God has called us as a church family to invest ourselves in God's work in the world. And we have a lot of other things that we want and a lot of other things that we need as a church, as individuals. What do we do when it's not always easy? God's called us to do all kinds of things. As an individual and as a church family, God has called us to raise children into mature adulthood. That's my responsibility as a father, but that's each of our responsibilities as a member of the church family. God's called us to care for those in poverty. God's called us to share the hope of God with a hurting world. God's called us to cultivate godly character and to leave behind the vices that almost destroyed us. God's called us to plant new churches. God's called us to root ourselves in this community. And sometimes the thing God's, God calls us to do will be unbelievable, unbelievably fulfilling, unbelievably joyful. And sometimes the things God's called us to do will get hard and be tiring. What do we do in those moments when we encounter resistance? What do we do when we discover that God's promises don't always come on silver platters? At that point, we face a decision, and the decision will be, will we, will we run away? Will we shift into sheer willpower? Or will we rely on God's power? Will we run away? Will we shift into sheer willpower? Or do we rely on God's power? Do we ask God for the courage, for the strength, for the perseverance, for the faith, for the love to do the things He's called us to do? to be the people He's called us to be. Will the resistance, will the difficulty cause us to depend more on God 
whose grace has gotten us safe this far and whose grace will get us home? Or, in the difficulty, do we forget everything God has done up until that point and let panic take hold, let a frenzy of fear take hold? God's people are at the cusp of the promised land. They and their ancestors have waited for centuries for this. And they get one bad report from the spies, and they're ready to turn back to Egypt. They say, wouldn't it be better if we just died in this desert than go into the promised land? So the two dissenting votes were Caleb and Joshua. Excellent. Caleb and Joshua speak up. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Katie? Is Katie here? Katie pronounces correctly. Jephuna? She's a seminarian. I trust her pronunciation. Joshua, son of Nun, Caleb, son of Jephune, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land. The Lord is with us. So Caleb and Joshua are saying, let's do this. God has promised us this land. It's better than we ever could have ever imagined. But the reason for their confidence is, the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. We don't need to be afraid of the people in the promised land. They need to be afraid of us. Because when Pharaoh tried to kill us, God dealt firmly with him. If the people in the promised land start acting like Pharaoh, God will deal firmly with them. The Lord is with us. So what they are doing is they're interpreting the difficulty of the present moment through the past. They are looking at through the lens of God's faithfulness and God's provision in the past, and that helps them interpret the difficulty of the present moment differently. Won't the God who protected us in Egypt protect us in the promised land? Won't the God who's provided for us in the desert provide for us in the land of milk and honey? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we've heard from the the ten spies and the people. We've heard from the two dissenting votes. Now we're going to hear from God. Numbers 14, 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? God's people are essentially saying, what have you done for us lately, God? And God is highly frustrated by that. The people are afflicted with a spiritual condition where they have lost their long-term memory. They can only think about what's happening right now. Their relationship with God is defined only by what's happening right now, their immediate circumstance with no sense of history, no broader context. And God is highly frustrated by this. We often think of God as stoic. When you read the Bible, you will discover God is not one thing. God is not stoic. God feels emotions deeply. Now, God's emotions never get out of control. They never get out of hand. But God is no stoic. God feels all kinds of things very, very deeply. And here, God is highly frustrated. 
by the sense that the history, the context is gone at the first sign of trouble. And so God does one of the most memorable things in the Bible. God responds to the people's rebellion. He has taken centuries to get them to this promised land, and now they're rebelling. God responds to the people's rebellion by, number one, forgiving them. He forgives them. He is frustrated, and he forgives them. And then number two, God declares that of the current adult generation, only Caleb and Joshua will enter the promised land. So God forgives them, and then God says that in the current adult generation, only Caleb and Joshua will enter the promised land. God declares that they will wander in the desert for 40 years. And during those 40 years of wandering, the current adult generation will die, everyone except Caleb and Joshua. The children will become adults. They will have children of their own. And then Caleb and Joshua will lead those people into the promised land. If you had to reflect on what's happening here, God is giving everyone what they asked for. God is giving everyone what they wanted. When they heard the spies' report, the people cried out, it would be better to die in the desert than enter the promised land. And God will give them what they wanted. Now, Caleb and Joshua had a different opinion. God is going to give them what they wanted. So God says, you are forgiven for rebelling against me, and you will die in the wilderness just like you wanted. This is one of the most interesting in some ways, heart-wrenching scenes of the Bible. But it's God's mercy and justice on full display. God forgives the Israelites while also letting them feel the effects of what they've asked for. God forgives the Israelites while also letting them feel the effects of what they've most deeply desired. God remains faithful to his people without eliminating all the earthly consequences of their sin. You're going to see this, and we're going to see this again and again and again. God forgives his people, remains faithful to his people, but that doesn't mean he always eliminates the earthly consequences of our sins. God's mercy and God's justice work hand in hand. I recently read a story that reminded me of this. It was from in Fayetteville. In Fayetteville, a man was sentenced to a night in prison for violating his probation. He, he was a, is a veteran. He has PTSD. Uh, he had made some bad choices that a judge felt a, a, a worthwhile uh, judgment out of it or, or, you know, consequence out of it was a night in jail. But the judge also did that hoping it would be sort of a wake-up call. And then after the judge had heard all his cases for that day, he took off his robe, walked down to the jail cell, and spent the night with the man in the cell so that as a person with PTSD, he would not be alone all night in a confined space. Justice and mercy. There is a price to be paid, and I'm with you through it all. There's a poet and a theologian named G.K. Chesterton who, who wrote that we should not simply be concerned about vices running wild, we should also be concerned about virtues running wild. And what he means by this is that virtues need to work together. Think of the harm that's done when we pursue knowledge without compassion, 
or when we pursue compassion without knowledge. So you may be more of a justice person, or you may be more of a mercy person, and you may wish God had dealt with the Israelites using just the one virtue that you prefer. But God's virtues do not run wild. God holds them together where they belong, justice and mercy. The Bible describes Jesus this way. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. So the Israelites experienced the justice and the mercy of God after they rebelled against God at the cusp of the promised land. You and I, in much the same way, experience the grace and truth of God, the fullness of God's grace and the fullness of God's truth in Jesus. Jesus shows us how broken we are, and Jesus assures us that he makes beautiful lives out of broken pieces. Jesus will show us how far we have to go to be the people God's calling us to be, and he will walk with us every step of that long journey. God desires to be with his people. Jesus will show us our need, that you and I cannot stand in the presence of a holy God on our own merit, but Jesus will also show us our deepest desire, that he will be the bridge back to our Creator, that we will live it forever in a relationship with the holy God, not on our merit, but on his merit, in Jesus' name. The fullness of God's grace and the fullness of God's truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And I hope that one day I will come to love people more like Jesus does. Full of grace and truth. Virtues not running wild, but held together. And, and it makes me praise God for people like Caleb, people like Joshua, people who encourage us to go after the things God has called us to do. Not to give up in the face of adversity, but to courageously, strongly, and courageously go after the things that God has called us to do. So the question I would ask you as I wrap up this passage is, where do you need to ask God for the courage to do what He has called you to do? Where do you need to, where do I need to ask God for the courage to do what He has called us to do? Where are you tempted to retreat or to rely on sheer willpower when what we need to do is rely on God's power? Rely on God's power to take that scary step of committing our lives to Him, to take that scary step of loving our neighbor or investing more in God's work in the world, of not giving up on that commitment you've made, or on taking a fresh step in your relationship with God, where do you and I need to ask God for the courage to do what He's called us to do? So on Valentine's Day, you may remember that Holly challenged us to show love to somebody who needed it. Do you remember this? If you were part of the church at Valentine's Day, maybe, you may, I know we have folks who weren't, but you probably remember that. I remember that. I remember thinking, that's a good idea. I should do something like that. That's what I thought. Hmm, yeah, that's good. So that night, Mandy 
and myself and our girls, uh, Indy, who's four, and Cora, who's uh, almost two, going on 15, were, uh, were, went to Valentine's Day dinner. And on the way out of the restaurant, we uh, walked by an older man who was eating alone, and we exchanged pleasantries with him, and, and we kept going. And then, before I could grab her hand, Indy ran back. Now, she didn't even hear Holly's challenge, mind you. Indy ran back to the man and gave him a huge hug. And the look on his face said something between, I'm not sure I should be doing this in a pandemic, and this is just what I needed. So I suppose she has a little bit of Caleb and Joshua in her. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever He's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, I am so deeply grateful for each person in our church family. For the different ways you've gifted us. Lord, even for the struggles you've put in our lives that teach us how to love one another better. Lord, I thank you for the people who are like Caleb and Joshua who remind us to Pursue the things you have called us to do. So, Lord, I don't pretend to know what everyone's next step from this passage and this sermon is. For some of us, it's to begin walking with you, begin our relationship with you through the grace and truth of Jesus. To take a new step of faith, to not walk out on a commitment we're about to walk out on. to step up in serving, in giving, in loving, reaching out to a neighbor, a friend, someone we've lost contact with. But Lord, my prayer is that we would not do these things in our own power and that we would not run away in the face of adversity. But Lord, in this moment, we would ask for your power your courage to do the things you've called us to do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's continue in our worship, standing and singing, also submitting our prayer requests and our offering as we leave. Let's worship together. <clears throat>